0: This is Hot and Dry, a podcast about climate change in the Southwest.
1: And about how it's changing the places we live and how it's changing our lives. I'm Paige Buono.
0: And I'm Colin Haffey. I'm super excited about our second episode of this season here on Hot and Dry. We we had my one of my really, really good friends, Nina Elder, on. Um, she's been a hero of mine ever since I got to know her five or six years ago when we met sort of serendipitously as I walked into her office, um, on a random visit and she's just a super great person. Um, very nice, very generous, and also, um, just incredibly smart and visionary. And it was a pleasure to talk with her. Um, before we jump in, you know, Paige, what, what do you think was a takeaway from, from our interview that you want to share up front?
1: I The conversation with Nina was absolutely expansive and inspiring. And I think just seeing Nina's brain at work could have uh, kept my attention for hours and hours. And I think, I guess what, um, Nina's going to say it a lot more eloquently uh, than I do, but I think one of the things Nina really kind of came back to again and again was sort of unraveling what we know and what we think we know about how people are and what they care about and how they care about the things they do to be open to what they tell us and the knowledge that they have and the connection that they have and let, um, let that sort of guide how we adapt.
0: One of the things that I took away was just her willingness to start up conversations with almost anybody. And to be very genuine in her interest in hearing what people have to say and appreciating other people's knowledge, especially if it comes from, you know, uh, a different way of knowing things or different experiences that may have put a person in a different political group, or you know, they may come from a, a background that's, you know, like a like a logging or an extractive background that may, on the surface, be. You know, counter to her more environmental, you know, left wing progressive background. But she listens to people and actually gets, kind of cuts through the bullshit and gets into conversations about how their landscape has changed, what they've learned about. And as she calls it, kind of accesses their genius. So, Paige, like as a storyteller, I imagine that, you know, it's when you cut through the superficial stuff that you actually get into the heart of the story and the meat of the story? Do you have examples? Is there a magic that happens when, when people kind of start talking about about real real issues?
1: Yeah, I think there's definitely a magic and a connection. And I think it's what makes a good story a good story is when you sort of peel back the layers to explore, expose what is really our essential humanity and this thing that we share. Um, And I think it's a genuine curiosity about someone's life and their their perspective and their unique genius um, and a willingness to sort of let it sink in before you're trying to shape it into something else. She sort of takes this next level uh, of engaging those people in their own storytelling Um, So it's not just sort of an interview, but she's thinking about community projects, and she's helping people elevate their words and reflect them back to their community. And I think the interactive approach that Nina takes is a really unique way of accessing that. Colin, what about you? As someone working in conservation and climate change, and sometimes maybe from a less sort of, um, strictly storytelling perspective, but who obviously relies on story a lot. What did you glean from the conversation with Nina for the work we do?
0: The way that I like to do conservation work or approach conservation work is by, you know, trying to find group of groups of people who are all, you know, similarly minded, at least in the sense that they have a shared vision and shared goals for, a particular place. And that can be pretty broad, like we want the forest to be here in 100 years. So you start there. And one of the questions we ask when we have a big group of people like that is who's not at the table. And in part, we ask that because we know that diversity brings good ideas and different ways of thinking and different ways of approaching a problem, which can help us solve um, solve problems quicker. Um, But it also is important because I think that the stories that the the people who are often left out of those conversations bring to the table are often what actually provides a lot of the the soul of a project and fills in the tapestry of a landscape in a way that's unreplicable um, through anything but personal experience and personal story. And so I think that they fill in a lot of the why are we out here having this meeting? Why the hell are we doing this Zoom thing? What are we doing with this field trip? A lot of the answers to those types of questions come from the diversity of stories that the group provides. And a broad group provides broad stories. And the more stories you have, the richer your tapestry is and the better your project is in the end.
1: I think that's right. And I think the other thing that Nina brought in and, um, that is so part of that is the willingness to embrace complexity and to embrace paradox. And I think, you know, Nina very much exists in a space of not considering herself an optimist or a hopeful person and being really committed and passionate to the work she does. And I think we all have to channel a little bit of that.
0: You know, when Nina uses the word paradox, what does she mean? What do you mean? You know the words, Paige. You're you're our words person.
1: You know, paradox, when I think about it, it's really just... It's the fact that two things that are seemingly at odds can both be very true. And I think that what happens is that when you sort of embrace that, it ends up leaving a whole lot more room for a lot of realities.
0: So it's like, would it be fair to say that rhubarb pie is a paradox? (laughs) Because like on the (laughs) surface, you think, why would you put rhubarb in a pie and then you eat it? and it's like oh it's really really good i'm
1: not convinced that that rhubarb pie is a paradox
0: have you ever had rhubarb regular regular <laughs> <laughs> have you ever had regular rhubarb what the hell do you eat what do you eat rhubarb in other than pie
1: it's an excellent question salads
0: like you eat the leaves or what
1: no you eat the the sour sour stock
0: i still think rhubarb pie is the, like that's the only food paradox that i'm coming up with right now without you know any more rambling from me and Paige. Let's just jump in here to our interview with uh, artist and new resident of Datil, New Mexico, Nina Elder.
2: I'm Nina Elder. I'm a creative researcher and artist, and I'm calling in from the ancestral and current lands of the Isleto people. Yeah, I just left Datil yesterday and Um, I have five projects in five different places in the next five months with less than 12 hour turnaround times between each project. So it's kind of my packing was a little bit insane because they're all in very different ecosystems.
0: So you're going to Alaska first Mm -hmm. and then where?
2: And then I have two different projects in Alaska and then I go to South Dakota and then I go to Maine and then I go to Bisbee, Arizona.
0: How do you get started with, so you have you said you have 5 in a row so how do you how do you line all those things up what's the process
2: well sometimes i have like an ongoing relationship with a place so a lot of my work in alaska is with the anchorage museum and with the smithsonian that's up there i feel really lucky with those relationships where i if i have kind of a complicated idea or something that needs some participation to flesh out that is something I can't just do on my own. I often can write to them and be like, can we turn this into a community project? Or can I do a workshop that will help fuel this next project? So they've been able to kind of step in um, and support me sometimes financially, sometimes just by like using their institutional mechanisms. Um, this is my ninth summer going to Alaska and you, often um, what I'm doing up there has some level of kind of like working with an institution on some level. And I think I often recognize with institutions like, oh, they're really focusing on environmental stuff, but they could grow in this area of connecting with the local community or they're super grassrootsy and they could maybe benefit from doing more structured programming. So it's like, because I think about how institutions work, um, I kind of, I will approach an institution with the idea of how I can help them fill in their voids.
0: As you go in, to these communities, your art responds to the conditions on the ground and to the landscape that you're in. Mm -hmm. But what is the sort of common thread or what's the commonality between all of the different art pieces? Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting to think about because my art has really taken on a lot of different forms in recent years. Um, I've been doing these like really large community-based murals, but then I also make drawings where I'm like in a studio by myself making um, work and I also write essays. The threads between all of that right now, it's interesting that you say threads um, because I'm really actually thinking a lot about thread and fiber and fabric these days um, because I'm working a lot with the idea of things that get worn out through use and how as the person that has used something up are we implicated in that. So. Um, I've been making a lot of work about knots and anchor lines and nets, um, things that, you know, if you are depending on a net, you also know that the net will eventually give out. And so it demands that you are in this cycle of use and repair with it. And so in pursuing that work, like I, I go out in the field and I take photographs, but I also talk to people about ropes and knots and nets and anchor lines and have different ways of documenting those conversations about that cycle of implication of use and repair. And it's been really interesting because I work a lot in communities where conversations about climate change aren't necessarily welcome, but it's really interesting because I can talk to a fisherman in Alaska who maybe doesn't want to talk about climate change, but he's he or she's very willing to talk about how crazy the oceans have been and how much bigger the storms have been and how harder they've had to work to keep their knots tied through the winter or that the fish harvest is so bad they can't afford to do the repairs. You know, and to me it's these long term listening exercises get people talking about things that kind of show the all of those threads that knot together that for me is the. the threads of, you know, why I would say I'm a climate oriented artist.
0: Does that feel like that's a progression from your, the stuff that you started out on with like with the mines and the exploration on that?
2: Yeah, it's been a huge shift. So for about 15 years, I was making really large photorealistic drawings of things like pit mines and clear cut forests, really trying to show in incredible detail, the devastation that, Um, our lifestyles create in a landscape. But then kind of around the beginning of COVID, I just was realizing that we're like in a much more personal space and our choices are much more, they're happening in in a much closer tangible space than in that larger environmental scale stuff. So finding metaphors that are actually the size of things that you can hold in your hands um, was a huge shift for me. And so I first started doing these fiber, drawings of fiber based objects, like like the first time I had to quarantine back 14 months ago. And it was just a really big shift into a more personal poetic metaphoric space Um, rather than like smashing someone over the head with a five foot by five foot drawing of a pit mine.
1: I've heard you or read, you refer to that um, poetic space of potential. And I'm curious if there's hope wrapped up in that or or what sort of potential means in that context.
2: I think a lot of times when we're talking about environmental issues, it's really easy to look towards the past and to think about the steps that got us to where we're at. And then what does the next step need to be? And I think by working with poetry, with metaphor, it allows kind of a non-linear space to open up, where we can kind of understand those more long-term effects or um, where like things like speculation um, and hope can come in or also where there's space for really negative emotions and where we can feel grief or we can feel loss and that that doesn't have to be like that next linear step. It's like, oh, we know we're going to be kind of swimming through a lot of loss in these next ecological cycles but how do we still keep moving? How do we still keep that movement happening? So I think that's one of the answers to the question of why art for me.
1: I'm interested, you also weave a lot of science into all of this. And I'm curious what the relationship and interest is
2: there. I think a lot of times it's actually where I'm at because I'm so interested in change and how we understand change. I'm actually in a physical context where there's science happening and so there's proximity, but I'm also the kind of person where I meet a scientist, and if they start speaking in data at me, I want to take it apart. I want to get them. I want to get them speaking poetry because I know it's there. Every time I meet a scientist, I'm like, let's get back to that curiosity. Let's get back to that beauty um, that started this because I think there also needs to be beauty and curiosity at the other end. Um, you know, the space that often gets filled with climate data that's super overwhelming, depressing. We don't know how to respond to it. It's like if we can actually have something stickier there that we know how to let into our hearts and brains, we're going to be so much more well prepared for the future. So. I'm
0: thinking about how we, like how we, the broader we address problems. And like a lot of times it's done by measuring, you know, developing outcomes and measurements to determine whether or not we've hit that change, whether or not we're seeing the change that we want. And so it sort of like necessarily cuts out a lot of the beauty and a lot of the art. You often hear this thing of like, oh, it's it's part art and part science. And the science is like always seen as the part that we can measure. And the art is seen as like the fluffy stuff that we can't measure and it's important. But, you know, at the end of the day, like what shows up in the reports and what shows up in the places that need funding are, you know, are all of the, the measurable things in the metrics, but what impacts the community is often that stuff that happens outside of the metrics and the metrics leave a lot untold and they leave a lot to be desired. Yet we don't know a better way to do it. So I wonder in your travels and in, in your research and in your learning, what sort of advice do you have to incorporate more of the art, more of the beauty into the decision-making process that we have as a society?
2: You know, I'm thinking a lot about um, the, the weirding of, of tidal situations in Alaska and the changes in the fishing industry and that climate scientists... Have had a hard time putting their finger on exactly why, but then there's a huge tradition among Alaskan fishermen and fishermen in Alaska is a gender-neutral term. I feel like I need to say that. Um, but among Alaskan fishermen, that there's the Alaska Fisher Poets Society, and they have these huge poetry gatherings. There's a lyrical song tradition. There's all these things and they write songs and poems about their relationship to the fish, their ongoing connection to storms and how storms are changing. And I think that that fills in some of the gaps that the data maybe doesn't. And so when science is looking for that kind of ineffable, I'm having a hard time, because there's no word for it, that thing that gels something from data into knowledge or experimentation into um, belief. The, those knots get tied by culture.
1: I'm curious how you talked a little bit about like your relationship to the data um, that science often produces being sort of different than just um, interpreting it and trying to make sense of it to inform policy or something. But I guess I'm curious from like an emotional resonance, how, how your reaction to that differs from the stories that the fishermen tell you about this changing seas or is, is there something connected between the two?
2: I mean, I think it's really just the mode of communication often. Um, having an experience where you're speaking one-on-one with a person and they're telling you about their experience of something in their own language, it takes some of the politics out of it. And it takes the um, what you believe out of it because you just are hearing one person tell their story. And I think that that's been so interesting working in with the timber industry in the Pacific Northwest and fishing areas in conser- fishing industry and in conservative politically conservative areas where there's a lot of hatred of environmentalism but the environmental knowledge is in in those conservative cycles and the economies that are most impacted by climate change are in somewhat conservative places and I think amplifying those stories um It's just, I've, I've been changed by that. It's been really, really powerful for me. And I wish that those stories would get out there more Um, just to realize that the everyday Joe is a climate genius, depending on where they live, you know, and um, celebrating that a little bit more.
0: Do you think there's gatekeeping that goes on within the communities that are trying to push for change in terms of who has access to tell their story?
2: Yes. I think there's a lot of gatekeeping. You know, I was front seat to it two summers ago in Alaska where, um, when they were trying to open up the Arctic for drilling for oil, and the indigenous people were so rarely allowed to speak for themselves because it was so conflicted up there because a lot of indigenous people wanted drilling because they've been economically sidelined by the oil industry for so long, and this was an opportunity for them. and. It was really, really clear that there whoever had the amplification mechanism, whoever had the connection to the press, was scripting the story for those frontline indigenous communities to make it seem how they wanted it to be, both from the environmental side and from the oil side. And um and I went to all of the um public statement hearings for that. I traveled all over Alaska to listen to those because I thought that what an incredible thing that the decision. There was a decision-making board who had to listen to as many testimonies as they could. It was fascinating to be there in the room and then to see what was on the front page of the New York Times the next morning because it did not match up in the slightest.
0: How does your art counter that story?
2: I write a lot about the idea of paradox. I know that that's something that you know has flummoxed scientists and spiritualists and philosophers that there are often coexisting truths that are in conflict with each other philosophically that inspires me. And I like to introduce these huge metaphors into spaces, you know, to help people understand that if things are too clear, then they're probably ignoring 99% of what the actual problem is. Or if they know what the outcome of their experiment is, then they're not truly being creative and experimental. I think I'm an artist because I love complexity and I'm terrified at society's desire for simplicity these days. It absolutely terrifies me. And so if I can introduce these big metaphors in and get people enchanted in complex metaphor, then when they have to make decisions, when a campaign comes their way or they're deciding what to invest in or they're deciding how to live their life, they might be more comfortable taking the more complex choice.
0: What else do you wanna talk about?
2: We didn't talk about beer.
0: We didn't talk about what? beer. Oh, yeah. Well, so as you, tr- as you travel around, besides New Mexico, where's your favorite place to get a beer? Can I
2: say my favorite place to drink a beer, not get a beer? Yeah, sure. So where I live in Alaska, there's a huge glacial confluence. And there's a mile thick of ice that's revealed right there. And then there's this like beachy area called the toe. And it's really nice just to like go with a six pack and plunk it down in the glacier ice and hang out on the beach and crack a beer it's pretty good
0: so how's the how's the bar in dattle
2: it's great um i mean i haven't seen it they like get wild because i usually go there to get out of the wind in the afternoon if i need to use wi-fi and you know they have lacumbre on tap oh wow. great. they have air conditioning wow they've got a lot of taxidermy Swinky. There's a tender named Donna who walks with a walker, so your beer comes kind of slow, but it it gets there.
1: Wait, is she carrying the beer with the walker, or is it on the tray yeah. of the walker?
2: She has a tray on her walker. Nice, brilliant, brilliant. Oh, and there's a butcher's. Sh- it's so the bar is in the gas station, and in that same gas station, there's the bush butcher shop, and so people will trade parts of their cow for their-
0: um, Like the bar tab? For their bar
2: tab. Uh And so the, like, I've been vegetarian for quite a while and I'm coming out of it and the cheeseburgers there are just unbelievably (laughs) good. You see someone like walk in the front door with like the leg of a cow or I don't know what part it is. And then you're eating a cheeseburger. I'm like, that's the way I want it to happen. Like it's for real. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. Yes. So. That's pretty cool. Well,
1: I could keep asking you questions and talking for a million years, but.
2: Yeah, I should probably go to the airport and go to Alaska.
1: <laughs> Thanks for...
2: like, there's my backpack. I'm like, ready to go, <laughs> it's so
1: weird. Hey, thank you for making this
2: happen. <laughs> I love that Colin was like, let's just do it before you go. And I was like, that's next week, great. So totally works.
0: So thanks so much to Nina for joining before her, you know, epic road trip.
1: Wait, was she flying or road tripping? Flying. She was literally showing us her packed bag. She squeezed us in on her way to the airport. Generous. Generous human.
0: Okay. So one of the questions we we like to ask everybody at the end of every episode is, who are your climate heroes or the people who are your mentors or who do you go to for inspiration? You know, so we forgot to ask Nina this question. So I emailed Nina and... I knew she would get the email when she was already in Alaska, and everybody that I know in Alaska, I can't help but ask them if they can see Russia. I know that it's an old joke, and I know that it's not very funny, but Nina replied and said that she actually did live on the Bering Strait for a summer, and she could see Russia. So... I also
1: didn't know it was an old joke. What's an old joke from? It,
0: oh, my God. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? No. <laughs> Do you remember Sarah what Palin? Was joke? Oh, yeah. I
1: don't remember Do you remember, remember that? Tina Fey
0: as Sarah Palin?
1: Thank you. No. <laughs> Got nothing? No. <laughs> How can <laughs> I'm we so talk sh- to each I'm other? just shook.
0: I'm so <laughs> really? shook.
1: You don't know the Russia joke. <laughs> everyone else will. Not
0: everyone. I just didn't. I just. Assumed, so here's the thing. I assume that if I know something, I assume that if I know something, everybody else knows it. Like. I assume that I'm the lowest common denominator.
1: No, no. I'm the in... lowest. No, what you're... <laughs> Turns out...
0: <laughs> if you're going to divide by something, you should divide by me. Because if if Colin knows it, everybody knows it.
1: No. Nope. Turns out that's not true. There's a new lowest common denominator in the house.
0: <laughs> oh, my God.
1: <laughs> Listen, for our listeners, if the Russia joke was lost on you, you're in good company. I didn't get it either. Google... Sarah Palin.
0: Yeah, I mean, Google Sarah Palin, Tina Fey, and you'll have a good you'll have a good laugh, but just don't tell anybody about it. So circle back. (laughs) Your email literally (laughs) ten minutes ago.
1: Ten minutes ago.
0: Rewind ten minutes ago, and that's how we got here. I emailed Nina and asked her who her climate heroes were, and she said some really important people. One is Table Women United, is a group of people that does just amazing work. it's worth reaching out. We'll put a, a, a link to in the show notes to their group, but you should you should check them out. She mentioned Chip Thomas, who does really awesome. Um, Paige, you know of Chip.
1: Yeah, Chip's work out on the Navajo Nation is incredible. He does these black and white um, portraits and images and wheat paste them and, and murals. He invites artists from all over the, the world out there, um, and they just create incredible art. It's
0: beautiful. So two really great... Um, Art artists and art groups that are worth investigating and learning more about.
1: project that the Tewa women did on the Rio Grande is phenomenal. It's so beautiful. Go check it out. And thanks so much, Nina. And um, stay, everyone, we highly recommend everyone track Nina. She has got a summer and a year just packed with incredible projects. We can't wait to see what comes of it. Thanks, Colin, for inviting your your bestie on. She was fabulous.
0: Just good things are happening. You know, we we had we got to sit down with Nina, like things are opening back up, we're able to walk around without masks on. It's just really starting to feel like a new day in New Mexico. So Hopefully y'all are taking this podcast with you as you, you know, explore some new reaches.
1: No, but we should say if you, uh, if you have climate influencers, those who are inspiring you, who you think we should be having a conversation with, definitely drop us an email or a tweet. Give us a call. You probably know us if you're listening.
0: <laughs> yeah. Send all text to Paige though, because I'm still paying by the minute on those things.